0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Physical Attraction about the coronavirus, suppressing an epidemic for a year or more, and uh, serology we're going to talk about today. A very brief update. In the last episode we talked about the Oxford preprint paper which strongly emphasised the need for antibody testing in the wider population. And we also talked about how it's being massively misinterpreted by a lot of people at the moment. Now in terms of this antibody test, there's good news on this front just, uh, just breaking now. Um, Giving evidence to Parliament, Professor Sharon Peacock, who directs the National Infection Service in Public Health England, she says this antibody test could be ready for the general public to be tested in chemists or at home within days, not weeks or months. It will be a simple finger prick test, which you can order online, which is being tested in Oxford this week to see if it does work. And she said that several million tests have been purchased for use. Once they have been tested this week and the bulk of tests arrive, they will be distributed into the community. Now, I don't know how quickly they can really scale up manufacture of these tests and how fast they can ship them out to people and process them once they're done. I mean, blood work can take a while to come back at the best of times, uh, let alone for a brand new test. But if it is true that this is a finger prick test that you can uh, do at home and interpret the results of at home, uh, much like a pregnancy test rather than one of these complicated tests, it's very good news. Because it means we'll be able to test people far, far faster. At the moment, the bottleneck in testing is down to this fact you have to send a nurse out, you have to get a swab of a person's throat, you have to send that to a central lab and it's being processed. So if this uh, serological test does work in the way that they're claiming it does, um, then it's going to be really really important for massively ramping up testing to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And um, partly it will allow us to test people who have immunity and those people will be safe to work. Um, Partly we'll be able to test people more quickly, But also, as we discussed in the last episode, there's this relationship that the Oxford paper has between the severity of the illness, uh, and it's inversely related to how many people had it. And that makes perfect sense, right? If if an illness is only very occasionally severe, then perhaps lots and lots of people had it, and that gives you the same number of cases in the hospital as a severe illness, which few people had. Now, there's this question over whether it hospitalises 5% of people, uh, in which case, maybe one percent of the country has it, or if it hospitalises 0.1 percent of people, in which case maybe 50 percent of the country has it. I think it's likely that somewhere between those numbers, maybe two to three percent, at the end of the day, um, will be the the real reality here. But these tests will actually allow us to constrain that crucial number, and so hopefully, within the space of a fortnight, maybe we will know a great deal more about this pandemic. And of course, as soon as that evidence is publicly available, I will. Uh, write about it and and tell you about it. So let's get on to talking about the main topic of this episode then, which is this Imperial College modelling paper. Um, I want to discuss it because according to the official narrative of what's going on in this country, and I apologise, I know most of my listeners are actually in California at the moment, but I think there will be similar discussions going on in every country, but according to the official narrative of what's going on in the UK, this paper has convinced the UK government to completely change its strategy from essentially allowing the epidemic to occur and trying to protect the most vulnerable and mitigate its effects, to completely shutting down the country in a total lockdown, and attempting to prevent any more transmission of the virus. Now there's a quote from John Maynard Keynes, The Economist, whose theory about stimulating economies is being used quite rapidly now around the world. He said in his book, The General Theory, The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men, who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences, are usually slaves of some defunct economist. Well, in pandemics, the epidemiologists are the most important people, and we all obey their models and their ideas, so it's worth trying to understand how this single paper is theoretically so influential on our society at this time of crisis. Now, first off, I don't want to come across as sounding conspiratorial or get too deeply into politics here. Um, I always get criticised when I do that. Uh, but for those outside the UK, I should explain the current narratives and the current politics that have been going on because I think it's very illustrative of how societies can choose to respond to this pandemic and to disasters in general, which is what I want to focus on in the second part of this episode. So initially, it was sort of implied that Britain was going to embrace a strategy of herd immunity. The chief scientific advisor said, We think this virus is likely to be one that comes year on year, becomes like a seasonal virus. Communities will become immune to it, and that's going to be an important part of controlling this longer term. About 60% is the sort of figure you need to get herd immunity. So the long-term strategy is that everyone actually gets sick and gets immune. And at this point, when this phrase herd immunity was being bandied about, no restrictions on movement or gatherings were being announced. So as far as anyone could make out at this point it seemed like the government strategy was to avoid major shutdowns that were taking place in Italy and places like that, not shutting down schools or public life. Instead, they would let the disease run through a lot of the population, and crucially, keep those most vulnerable to the disease, such as the elderly, or those with underlying conditions, indoors for an extended period of time, while everyone else carried on as normal. Then those healthy people would get sick and recover, and gradually, hopefully, eventually, that would reach uh, 60% of the population with immunity. And at this point, for reasons we discussed in our first episode, outbreaks become much smaller, basically because on average you're meeting more immune people and you can't transmit the illness to them. Now that appeared to be the strategy at that point. This was the line until Monday the 16th of March, which was just over a week ago, as I write this. The weekend before that, the government took a lot of flack for this policy of herd immunity, because people had done the basic calculation that with a death rate of 1%, herd immunity would lead to hundreds of thousands of dead people in the UK if we allowed 60% of the population to become infected. And naturally, this didn't seem like a price people particularly wanted to pay. And a lot of organisations started get cancelling their own mass gatherings anyway, like our football league, for safety reasons. Then at the start of that week, Monday the 16th, they pivoted. Things started to get closed down, we hour in total lockdown. The official advice here is not to leave your home, except for urgent medical reasons, to buy groceries once a week, for very limited exercise, and to work if your job is crucial. So we went from the official advice being wash your hands more frequently and maybe stay home if you feel sick, to no one should leave their homes except for urgent reasons, gatherings of more than two are banned, and everything non-essential for survival is shut down, in the space of about seven days. This has obviously meant that a lot of people were not prepared for what was about to happen, and it's caused disruption in everyone's lives. Now in my mind, this clearly wasn't the original plan, they changed their minds, otherwise this would have been a bit more organised. Now there's a lot that could be said here. The least charitable explanation is that the government initially didn't really mind if a few old and sick people died, and wanted to keep the economy going instead. That might be the attitude of one advisor in particular, but it was obviously not a sustainable position, and the public backlash has convinced them to change course. So that's one way of looking at it. The most charitable explanation is that the government genuinely initially thought that they could shelter the most vulnerable and keep the economy going, and were maybe naive or misinformed or didn't want to overreact to the situation. Maybe there is a world where you can put everyone who's vulnerable in splendid isolation, while the rest of us get sick and get better and create herd immunity without a vaccine. It seems almost impossible to me to keep those groups separate and to manage with up to 20% of the country sick, but maybe you can squint and dream of it working, especially if the fatality and hospitalisation rates are lower than they appear, because of this thing we've talked about so often, the bias where observing from hospitals makes the disease look more severe than it is. And we are told too that there were lots of worries that if social distancing and lockdown was introduced too early, people would get bored of it too easily and stop obeying the rules, which could make it less effective than if it was deployed later on. We're told according to a BuzzFeed News TikTok of what happened that there were heated arguments on this point. Some people have been claiming that the use of the phrase herd immunity combined with estimates of the number who would eventually be infected for herd immunity, and then the lack of immediate measures has led to a misleading picture. That the intention was always to stagger the infections and flatten the curve, delaying the epidemic, so that the healthcare service would never be overrun. This was the government's delay strategy. So according to these people, the whole fiasco is a massive PR blunder. I don't really buy that either because they should have known that flattening the curve in this way sufficiently would be really difficult given this idea that a lot of people do unfortunately need to go to hospitals. If you had a case where you'd flatten the curve, the curve is not going to be flattened enough to be below our capacity, which is tiny compared to millions of people who could be sick at once. So, which of these narratives is true? God, we don't know. The reality, as ever, is probably somewhere in between. I quite like the old maxim, which says, never suspect uh, corruption or malfeasance or evil when incompetence and dithering can explain things just as well. But one thing that did definitely annoy me was the way the politicians attempted to shield themselves behind science as a reason for taking the decisions they did. You must all know by now that I am a firm believer that policy, that everything really, should be guided by science and scientific understanding. But ultimately, that can only go so far. There are still political decisions to be made. Science tells us that CO2 causes global warming. Science tells us that climate change will damage the environment, cause species to go extinct, and lead to increased weather extremes that kill people. Science tells us that planes emit CO2 when they burn their fuel. You can't just shoot down every plane and say that science told you to do it. Science tells you a lot about the costs and benefits of your decisions, and sometimes it'll be so overwhelming that science will effectively make the decision for you. Don't drink lead paint, for example. And sometimes it will be very unclear what the appropriate course of action is, and you need to make a decision that will be informed by science. But you're still making a value judgment. Using science as a shield is not ideal, especially when they were vague about what science it was that they were using, and what it implied for the costs and benefits of these decisions. The great thing about science, the whole point of it, is that you can be specific, you can be open, you can collaborate, you can point out flaws, and you can base your conclusions on evidence, logic and reason that everyone can see. Just gesturing at some vague thing you call science without bringing receipts is no good. So this is what we've all been gossiping about in the UK. The official narrative, by which I mean the one that politicians leak to friendly journalists, is that they were presented with some magical new modelling from Imperial College, London, in a discussion around the 12th of March, i.e. just before the pivot, which convinced them that there was no way to let herd immunity build up without risking catastrophe to the health service. Principally, it was reported by some, the government found new data from Italy that suggested up to 10% of people infected could be hospitalised and 5% could need intensive care which would overwhelm the healthcare service and could lead to many more deaths. Now, I don't know what really happened here, and hopefully when they have the inquiry or the subsequent uh, reporting comes out and the memoirs come out and the the post-mortem of this thing comes out, we'll find out. But I think this framing of what happened, that they plugged some different data into their model and then suddenly it completely changed their minds, I think that's disingenuous. The idea that 5% of people who get coronavirus might need to go to intensive care is not some new information out of Italy. The 80% mild, 15% hospitalised, 5% critical data, this was being bandied about online from China for weeks and weeks as far back as mid-February. Yes, it might be potentially biased because only the most severe cases go to hospital, but you know we, we had reason to believe that this was feasible. It was this statistic that first made me sit up and pay attention uh, to the whole pandemic, because it seemed so high. It's this that made me write loads of mopey diary entries in mid-February about how doomed we were. And, and it just seems to me that this information was not news to the people in the country who are organising this. If it is, if it was news, then that is truly astonishing. Um, and the idea that the healthcare system in the UK couldn't be overwhelmed is silly when it was in Wuhan, where they have just as many hospital beds as us, maybe more, so I don't buy this idea that there was really new data from Italy that came in and changed everything. As I keep saying, I'm an idiot. These people are expert virologists who read all the scientific papers with a critical eye I can't match. They knew these numbers and were, according to the same BuzzFeed leaks, arguing more strongly for urgent interventions to occur earlier in order to save lives. Neil Ferguson himself, who wrote this imperial model, his group published a paper on 10th February, estimating that 1% of people who got coronavirus would die, And obviously, if 1% are dying, then a greater percentage than 1% must need hospital treatment, right? So obviously he was aware of these numbers. Suffice it to say that there should be as serious questions asked about how this was handled, the discussions that occurred at crucial times, and there are lots of conflicting reports and people with different motivations reporting different stories out of this decision-making process at a really crucial time. The strategy has now shifted and I think that's a very good thing. I think it's a very precautious thing. I think it's very safe. I think it will potentially avert a lot of deaths and that's a good thing. And that's as far as we'll go into UK politics today. So let's go on to this Imperial College paper then because it's worth pointing out the crude exponential growth that we've been talking about where the disease just doubles and doubles and doubles. I mean obviously more sophisticated models exist which take into account important things. How people move, people becoming immune, how long they're infectious for, and can even attempt to model the effects of different interventions, like cutting off public transport, closing down gatherings, closing down schools, etc. A note on modelling. The one thing to remember, all models are wrong, some models are useful. That is to say, no mathematical model will give you actual reality no matter how hard you try, but lots of them can tell you important things about how reality is expected to behave. Now there are advantages to simple models. Simple models obviously miss a lot of things out, Sometimes the things they miss are crucial and mean the simple model is totally invalid for most situations, especially when there are lots of moving pieces that interact with each other. Simple models are easy to understand, which means that it's easier to understand what assumptions you're making. In a model, a parameter is some value that you tweak and set to the best of your knowledge, or if you want to see what happens in different situations, you know, what happens on Earth if gravity is 10 times stronger, or something like that. So for an epidemic model, it might be r naught, the number of people an average person goes on to infect, or the length of time a person is ill for, or the fraction of people who die of a disease. Usually, each parameter is representing some new process you want to account for in your model. So in this case, adding new parameters accounts for infection rate, immunity, deaths, etc. Having a model with lots of parameters means you're taking lots of processes into account, which is good. But it also makes the model more difficult to interpret you need a lot of testing to understand exactly why the model behaves as it does when you change something. And if the parameters you're using are not well constrained, you don't know them very well, you are adding more and more assumptions into your model, which can make it inaccurate. With enough assumptions in the model, you can get it to say virtually anything. John von Neumann, famous genius who some will remember from the episodes on nuclear fusion, who essentially invented modern-day computing architectures, said, with four parameters I can fit an elephant, and with five I can make him wiggle his trunk. For this reason, modelers tend to like to use simple and complicated models together. And actually, thanks to this extraordinary age of Twitter that we live in, we now know more about this model. Professor Neil Ferguson wrote on Twitter that, I'm conscious that lots of people would like to see and run the pandemic simulation code we are using to model control measures against COVID-19. To explain the background, I wrote the code, thousands of lines of undocumented C, 13 plus years ago to model flu pandemics. I'm happy to say that Microsoft and GitHub are working with us to document, refactor, and extend the code to allow others without the multiple days training it would currently require and which we don't have time to give to use. They are also working with us to develop a web-based front end to allow public health policymakers from around the world to make use of the model in planning. We hope to make the first version releases of both the source and the front end in the next seven to 10 days. So in other words, they're hoping to release this model to the public shortly and maybe in a form that anyone can use which would be just fascinating and might justify another episode. So this model is of the complex variety. It's agent-based modeling, which means they account for how people move, how they interact at work and in the household, how different people are spread across the country, so the population density of cities versus the countryside. Data assumes that transmission can occur in the home, the workplace or at school, and people are sort of going between these boxes in the model and maybe infecting each other and maybe getting sick. And it uses data on all of these to try and figure out uh, the sizes of those groups uh, in the home in the workplace in the school and the likelihood of transmission they take r naught the number of people who get infected per infection from the data alongside estimates for how long someone is contagious for and how long it takes them to get sick that's taken from cases that we've observed so this thing is obviously a lot more complicated than just fitting an exponential where you just have one parameter, which is a a growth rate that doesn't take anything into account. So anyway, what does the model say? Essentially, the model says that trying to delay the outbreak and flatten the curve is not feasible. We can't mitigate the epidemic, trying to slow it down or letting it spread only to the healthiest people, and trying to keep it below healthcare capacity. Doing this still results in hundreds of thousands of deaths in the UK. Instead, we have to suppress it, go into lockdown, try and reduce transmission to a very low number, and stamp out the outbreak altogether. Specifically, this is in the paper's abstract, quote, we find that optimal mitigation policies, home isolation of suspect cases, home quarantine of those living in the same household as suspect cases, and social distancing of the elderly and others most at risk, might reduce peak healthcare demand by two-thirds and deaths by half. However, the resulting mitigated epidemic would still likely result in hundreds of thousands of deaths and health systems, most notably intensive care units, being overwhelmed many times over. For countries to be able to achieve it, this leaves suppression as the preferred policy option. In other words, that initial strategy would still kill many thousands of people, and the only option is suppression. You'll remember from last week that we did some scary back of the envelope maths based on a thousand critical care beds in the UK and potentially a million people needing those beds at the peak of an epidemic that was unmitigated. So if those kind of figures stack up, I mean, bearing in mind that we don't know how influenced they are by hospitals only seeing the worst cases, then you don't need a fancy model to see that trying to delay an epidemic so that a million people fit into a thousand beds is difficult. You'd need to delay it for a really long time, over an incredibly long period. You also realise that hospitals don't cure everyone. In fact, the paper Clinical Course and Mortality Risk of Severe COVID-19 noted that in an early sample of severe patients from Wuhan in China, 97% of those who were put onto ventilators unfortunately went on to die. The original paper is by Fei Zhu and was published in The Lancet, so if you want to look it up. Most COVID papers are free for anyone to read. Hospitals don't cure everyone, they can't, unfortunately. This is a viral infection and we don't have drugs that work effectively against it. All they can do is support your body while your immune system fights it, and your body won't always win. So if a million people are going into critical care, even if you can drag it out so that they all get to hospitals which aren't overwhelmed, a lot of them sadly will will pass away. So frankly, unless you assume that we're massively overestimating the fraction of people who get severely ill, which may yet be the case but which the antibody tests will tell us, you don't need a fancy model to tell you that mitigation still means a lot of deaths, because the basic maths we did last week will tell you that. In fact, the basic maths told us this over a month ago, which is precisely why the Reddit subforums I lurk in were freaking out and I was writing miserable diary entries to myself about how a 5% hospitalisation rate for an epidemic would overwhelm healthcare systems and kill millions. And this is now backed up by the more rigorous scientific approach of Imperial College London, which is good to know. And unless there is some miracle and the antibody test demonstrates that actually very few people get severely ill from coronavirus and a huge chunk of us have had it already and didn't notice, this is what our future is, suppressing the epidemic. The reason why shows up in the data they plug in for how the disease behaves, which is stark. If you have symptoms in your 20s, there's a 1.2% chance you'll be hospitalised. If that happens, there's a 5% chance you'll need critical care. And they assume half of critical care patients die based on expert opinion. That leads to a 0.03 death rate in cases in their 20s. Now, these are only the cases who have symptoms. Some unknown fraction of people have no symptoms at all, which could be half or could be less, but they're not represented as well in the data. However, according to this data, which is based on expats from Wuhan as well as Italy, this gets worse as you get older, with as many as 10% of people in their 50s needing to be hospitalised, and 0.6% eventually going on to die. This more than triples in your 60s, doubles again into your 70s, and doubles again into your 80s. Indeed, the data in this model expects that 28% of 80-plus-year-olds would need to be hospitalised, and most of those would need critical care. So, based on how many 80-year-olds there are in the UK, If 60% of people got infected, that's nearly 400,000 who need critical care just from this group. Scaling to the age distribution of the UK, they estimate that 4.4% of the total symptomatic cases need hospitalisation. So that's the scale of the epidemic, according to this paper, if left unmitigated. And then they throw in various ideas to mitigate. Again, you see where the assumptions creep into the paper here. The assumptions occur in how well you assume these measures will work. So case isolation, for example, assumes that people who are sick stay home, reducing their contacts by 75%, but can still infect people in the home. Voluntary home quarantine assumes entire households quarantine themselves when someone has symptoms, which was the official advice until the lockdown. Again, an assumption that only half the households comply with this policy creeps in here, so they're trying to take into account the fact that not everyone will behave perfectly. And they also model closing schools, social distancing by people over 70, and lockdown. So there's a crucial figure in the paper, figure two, which I suggest you look up if you can, um, where they basically just show what all of these measures do. And they can all flatten the curve a little bit, they can uh, spread out the duration of the epidemic and lower the peak demand. But since the demand for healthcare in this epidemic towers far above the availability by many, many times, as we saw with our back of the envelope data, unfortunately this can't do much to reduce deaths. It's a flattened peak, but the peak is still far, far above the capacity for most of the time, and uh, only that small sort of thousand beds that might be available, or 5,000 beds if they make more, you know, is going to be capable of treating people, and that's far smaller than demand. So one interesting note is that they model implementing these measures at a given trigger, which is the number of cases detected in intensive care for coronavirus. So, you know, 100 people have uh, coronavirus in intensive care, and they do the measure then. That's interesting to know. But essentially, while mitigation can cut deaths in half in this model, that's still hundreds of thousands of deaths. Applying the numbers to the US as they do in this model would lead to around a million deaths if mitigated. So mitigation alone is not enough to prevent this, even when done properly. And let's not forget that this would mean an overwhelmed healthcare system for months on end. And that causes deaths that aren't due to coronavirus, causing who knows how many deaths for healthcare providers and people who need other kinds of treatment causing who knows what kind of chaos in society. I mean, I, I I need some medical treatments at the moment. Thankfully, they don't appear to be urgent, but my chances of getting them in the next few months are, are minimal. Um, chances are, you know, that at that stage, if you had these many, many uh, deaths going on, the public pressure to try and put the genie back in the bottle would be overwhelming, but by then it would be far too late because of this delay you're seeing uh, in the hospital's Where the epidemic was two or three weeks ago. So given that this mitigation is going to still be uh, too costly, we're left with suppression. Now the good news is that according to the model, as well as anecdotal experience in Wuhan, a suppression strategy that involves everyone's social distancing, so that's a lockdown, alongside all of these specific measures about staying at home, isolating cases etc if someone falls sick, that can reduce deaths in the UK by a factor of 10 or 20 down to just tens of thousands as opposed to hundreds of thousands and it will prevent the healthcare system from being overwhelmed for too long. In such a scenario for the UK if these measures work as intended the peak of the epidemic will be hit in April May and the cases tail off towards the summer reaching a much lower level by June July and this will save hundreds of thousands of lives that could have been lost by an out-of-control epidemic. So the real kicker here and the thing to consider is what this actually means for society going forward if it works what happens when suppression stops, which is also prominent in the paper's abstract. Quote, we show that in the UK and US context, suppression will minimally require a combination of social distancing of the entire population, home isolation of cases, and household quarantine of family members. The major challenge of suppression is that this type of intensive intervention package, or something just as effective, will need to be maintained until a vaccine becomes available, potentially 18 months or more given that we predict transmission will quickly rebound if interventions are relaxed. We show that intermittent social distancing triggered by trends in disease surveillance may allow interventions to be relaxed temporarily in short time windows, but measures will need to be reintroduced if or when case numbers rebound. Last, while experience in China and now South Korea show that suppression is possible in the short term, it remains to be seen whether it's possible long term and whether the social and economic costs of the interventions adopted so far can be reduced. So effectively, the Imperial College modelers are mapping out a future for us where, sadly, coronavirus disruption persists for the next year to 18 months while a vaccine is prepared, a process which is very difficult to speed up for reasons we've discussed. Now we should say, in the UK, and perhaps your country, we're fortunate because we can see into the future, at least in a loose way. Wuhan and China, they're around two months ahead of us, Italy two weeks ahead of us. The situation will not unfold identically in every country, but They show us what our epidemic could look like in a fortnight, and Wuhan shows us what would happen if you try to lock down a population to suppress an epidemic. And in Wuhan, new cases have dropped off massively. Deaths have dropped off massively. And slowly, slowly but surely, life is beginning to return to something like normality. People are going outside again. Even in Italy, where the lockdown only began a fortnight ago, the last two days as I write this have seen fewer deaths than the peak of the epidemic, although still far too many to be good news. But what happens after that initial suppression, after we try to kill the epidemic in its tracks and then let life return to normal? Well, we don't know yet. But the Imperial College paper predicts it. It suggests that we will need to lock down again, and again, and perhaps again. Even after we suppress this initial outbreak, nowhere near enough people would be immune to prevent the disease from coming back in much the same way. If we relax measures after nearly stamping out the epidemic, we get a few days or weeks. And it's easy to see why. Imagine that we miss one case, or a handful of cases come in from somewhere else, or aren't noticed due to being asymptomatic. It takes time for those cases to build up again, from 1 to 2 to 4 to 8 to 16, etc. could be weeks, maybe 5 days or so for infections to double. It would be a period like we had in the UK between January and March, uh, in most of the rest of the world in fact, with cases rising only slowly, if at all, before exponential growth really kicked in. During that period of time, life could resume some level of normalcy. Then at some point we'd see a few more coronavirus deaths, and it would be time to lock down again for another few weeks to suppress the epidemic. Then release and then suppress again, etc., right up until a vaccine can be found, which could be 12 to 18 months. Now this is really quite extraordinary. I know everyone is aware of what's going on right now. The immense economic disruption of this lockdown, the millions of people who've lost jobs overnight, the plunging stock market... And a lot of this being sold on people who, in the mainstream, I think, are, are expecting perhaps a few months of disruption. Uh, in the States, they've said 15-day lockdown that might be over by Easter. Um, it, it, it's much like they said the First World War would be over by Christmas when that started in summer 1914. In the UK, there's been talk that we can turn the tide on the virus in 12 weeks, which is maybe a bit less... Uh, optimistic than 15 days, but no one is yet daring to mention that according to the model that is supposedly shaping government policy, after the initial lockdown is over, we might need to do it again and again and again and again. The success of this strategy, of course, assumes that people behave like they do in the model and are perfectly obedient, which to me seems like a huge assumption. This is really completely unprecedented. Not the pandemic. We've seen those before, and generally they did run through the human population and cause millions of deaths, as in the Spanish flu in 1918. What's unprecedented is a pandemic in a society as interconnected as ours, as globally connected, as technologically advanced. What's unprecedented is the attempts to control it in this way, with this lockdown and suppression that kicks in periodically. No one has ever tried to do that before. It's a noble aim, saving many thousands, perhaps millions of lives but if you cannot sustain it until the vaccine arises, then you may as well not do it at all. Those future potential lockdowns are not optional. If you skip one, you wind up with a full-blown epidemic, and all the work you did before was fruitless. The Ferguson paper says as much. It says, our analysis suggests that transmission will rapidly rebound, potentially producing an epidemic comparable in scale to what would have been seen if no interventions had been adopted at all. Needless to say, if this is how things go, this uh, 18-month alternate lockdown idea. It's going to cause political and economic disruption the likes of which none of us have ever seen. Think how stressful and unpleasant the last few weeks have been, how daunting the prospect is personally in in going on for weeks or months like this, the mind-boggling levels of support that governments are having to pump in to keep even a fragment of the economy running and have some hope of recovery once this is all over and done with. Think about the effort and difficulty of sustaining that over the next few months, and the disruption to your own personal life, which I'm sure is huge already. You know, I've described how it's impacted me a little bit already. Think about the impact on global food supplies, on global technology supplies, shortages of everything, which will definitely arise. You cannot lock down most of the world and expect these complicated just-in-time supply chains to continue working pace where things are ordered to the amount precisely the demand and not manufactured surpluses or anything like that, you can't lock down most of the world and expect to still be able to buy whatever you want whenever you want. Things are going to fray at the edges. That is inevitable. Now you've thought of all that, think about how we might respond if our leaders asked us to do lockdown number two, or lockdown number three, for a few months after a little bit of glorious freedom beforehand. Not to mention that if all goes well, we are going to be labouring under some serious cognitive biases here. You know, that inherent ways in our thinking that make foresight and prior planning difficult for humans, especially for rare events. So if you stockpile for a pandemic for decades, and a pandemic never happens, you look like you're wasting resources. Preparing for worst-case scenarios always looks paranoid and overcompensatory, until it doesn't, and then we question why it wasn't done. What's worse, we'll have survivorship bias. The vast majority of us will be fine through an initial outbreak if it's suppressed. The vast majority of cases who we'll hear from will report mostly having a mild illness or barely even knowing they have it. It will then seem, in retrospect, like the epidemic was nothing to worry about. We all made it through, didn't we? And we have Y2K syndrome. Briefly, the Millennium Bug, as I'm sure you know, was a concern that many computers would crash with catastrophic results when the year clocked over to 2000 due to the way they stored their dates. Luckily, this eventuality was foreseen in advance, and lots of people spent a lot of time preparing for it to reduce any potential for disaster. So when Y2K occurred, nothing happened. Planes didn't fall out of the sky, computers didn't crash, there was very little disruption. And a lot of people said, that was a big nothing burger, we got all excited over nothing. The problem here is that we can't know if the efforts to avert Y2K also averted disaster, or at least the information that suggests that it did, that's not being circulated as widely as everyone's personal experience. Everyone's personal experience is, the media hyped this up for ages and in the end nothing ever happened. So a suppression of an initial epidemic might look a lot like that. If we're lucky, Italy will get away with around 15,000 deaths. My country, your country might be similar too. And it's different. It's not quite Y2K because we all know the massive measures that are being taken to try and stamp this thing out. So it's clear that they'll have some effect. I think everyone will agree with that. But then people will say, you know, look, if this epidemic, this small epidemic happens and is suppressed, they'll say, look, 15,000 deaths, that's fewer than flu season, fewer than die in road accidents, the whole thing has been massively overblown, can't we just get back to normal now? Or they'll think, well the pandemic's over, the epidemic's over, there aren't new cases, there's no point in doing anything else. And it will look like all the efforts we've taken to prevent the pandemic were a massive overreaction. That's part of this exponential growth thing, you have to act when cases are in the hundreds or thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands because by then it's far too late to do anything about it. And I know people will say that, because I've been arguing fruitlessly with people like this for many years longer than is good for my blood pressure. So imagine the scenario where we actually succeed and suppress the initial epidemic, and then we have all these biases working together, making us think that it's not as bad, and we have the painful memories of economic disruption and extended quarantine in place, and then our governments and politicians, who are going to be held to blame for whatever happens, and will deserve at least some of the criticism they get, they'll ask us to lock down the country again. I don't want to sound melodramatic here, All I'll say is that in this scenario, you can't rule out major, major dissent. You can't rule out anything happening at this stage. There are already divides in our society. Politics increasingly splits along intergenerational lines, especially in the UK and the US. What's fascinating to me is the left, they're broadly younger, and the right are broadly older. That's true throughout the world. And history too. Churchill remarked that if you're not a liberal when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're old, you have no brain. I've been accused of both, so let's not go into that any further. The left, the young, are the ones whose ideology would find it more horrible to trade economic normality and normal life for many in exchange for the lives of the vulnerable few. The right, who tend to be older demographically, might be more ideologically willing to sacrifice a few unproductive members of society in exchange for the economy returning to normal. So the fascinating thing here is that the people who would personally suffer the most from lockdown might ideologically want to enforce it, and the people who would suffer the most from an epidemic might ideologically want to remove it. So we have to see how this plays out. I've already seen a lot of people using this as an opportunity to blame the younger generation or continue their previous political battles from before for not taking the situation seriously. In my experience, that That isn't true, but to be fair, the people I talk to probably aren't a representative sample. Now, I want to be clear and point out something pretty unique about this situation. People always claim that you can't put a value on human life, but in fact we do. We do this all the time. We do it implicitly, it's all implied, but there is absolutely a dollar value on human life. The value fluctuates wildly, sometimes ridiculously, but these decisions are made constantly. Air pollution results in one in six premature deaths around the world, according to a UN report. One in six. Yet companies choose to value their profits over human life, and we all implicitly choose to go along with it when we vote for politicians that won't regulate them properly, or do things like driving cars through cities, which increases air pollution. Climate change is another obvious example. Economists try to explicitly work out the value of a proper carbon tax. Uh, The value you would pay to emit carbon dioxide that would take into account all of the damage that you're causing to society. Well, people will die due to climate change, so somehow in these calculations these deaths are factored in. There is a value on human life implied by a carbon tax. Sometimes the trade-off is even more obvious. In 1987 the US government raised the speed limit from 55 miles an hour to 65 in certain states. This meant that people drove around faster, which is good for the economy, but fatality rates also increased. In fact, a crude calculation suggests that the economic benefit of allowing faster drivers versus fatality rates put the value of a human life at around $1.2 million. Now, I don't want to get too much into this kind of grim calculation, but if the coronavirus cost the economy trillions of dollars, then that's millions of lives. Using this horrendous standard. And it's, it's, it's a very important thing, I think, that is underestimated in the way we view things. It's this concept of fungibility. Um, for for economists to successfully run the world, they have to convince the rest of us that everything can be measured in dollars, and everything can be interconverted and traded. So you know, the the, the experience that I have of uh, you know a loving family or loving friends is ultimately worth some level of dollars to me, and could be traded for sufficient numbers of other things that uh, can be bought and paid for in dollars. This fungibility idea, I think, is really is really dangerous. Um, mathematical models will always need to assume how uh, things can be measured in terms of uh, dollars and cents and so forth. But we have to take a more multi-dimensional approach to these things. And this pandemic is a perfect example, um, because here, you know, we are trading. Uh, what we can see about these very uncertain futures that might await us in either case. Um, And we don't know what the dollar to life value is, but it's the sort of situation where you have to avoid making that kind of crude calculation. Because if you boil everything down to a single number, you miss huge amounts of nuance. You miss huge amounts of detail, important things that need to be taken into account. So you can't just plug it into the computer and let that decide, you know? So we know that human life is being valued all the time, um, but the notion of it always makes us extremely uncomfortable. And now every world government is in this bizarre, politically fraught version of the trolley problem, you know, that classic philosophical problem where you decide whether or not to throw a lever that will kill people uh, with a runaway cut. Every government in the world is now in its own version of that and is increasingly going to have to ponder its decision as to whether to pull the lever and implement these draconian measures to lock down the majority to save the minority, and so on. Now I want to point out, this is not even a simple decision, because we don't know what an uncontrolled epidemic would look like. It could easily cause just as much economic disruption as the lockdown measures, if a whole bunch of people are sick and fatality rates skyrockets because healthcare is overwhelmed, or if people blame the government for these deaths because of the policy that it's chosen in this situation. Policy doesn't happen in a vacuum, so if you're the only country that doesn't lock down, you'll be looking at other countries and seeing what could have been, and your government will be blamed. And there could be mass panic, there could be civil unrest, anything could happen, and it seems unlikely that ordinary business as usual could continue in epidemics of the scale that we're imagining here. So maybe this choice between the economy and human lives, uh, presenting as it does a rather sticky moment for neoliberalism's PR machine when posed so harshly, maybe it's really a false choice that isn't an actual choice in reality. But the problem is it's already being framed as a simple decision like that. President Trump is already shifting on this. As I write this, he tweeted quote, Our people want to return to work. They will practice social distancing and all else, and seniors will be watched over protectively and lovingly. We can do two things together. The cure cannot be worse by far than the problem. Congress must act now. We will come back strong. Already on Fox News, we had a bizarre scene where someone was arguing the elderly should sacrifice themselves to keep the economy in the country as the one they love and right-wing commentator Glenn Beck said he would rather die than kill the country. I suggest the fact that Trump is already sick of the pandemic two weeks after he realised it was going to be a serious problem, and two days into the proper US lockdown measures, which he suggests might be finished by Easter, that might bode ill for how this is going to go, and how long our shell-shocked political unity on this particular issue is going to last. And it is fascinating, you know, these lockdowns are approved in the UK... Uh, by up to you know 90% of the population, which is approval that nothing gets. So we are unified now, but um, who knows how long that will last. Now maybe he'll decide that he doesn't need to listen to scientific advisors who keep undermining him, or maybe he'll decide that the economic damage is too great and we'll get to see what an unmitigated epidemic really looks like. Maybe this is all some kind of weird attempt to pin the blame for the unpopular lockdown measures on the Democrats, or claim that he was never in favour of them, or something. I don't know, I've given up trying to predict US politics, nothing will surprise me, but I'm sure lots of you have your own opinions, and feel free to email them into me via the website if you want to. So, uh, moving away from the details, here's the situation. We are trying globally to do something unprecedented with massive disruptions to the way of life of billions of people around the world. We don't even know if it will work or not, although there's evidence that it can from Wuhan, but uh, draconian measures are needed. It's enough to totally wreck the global economy, because less activity is taking place. The alternative may involve hundreds of thousands of deaths in your country, a healthcare system that's overwhelmed for months, and millions needing to be hospitalised. Different countries with different leaderships are likely to approach this in different ways, and watching how they do that will be fascinating. Within countries, there's going to be increasing division between two camps, who are perhaps likely to argue over whether we can or should stop trying to suppress the epidemic totally and switch to a mitigation strategy. There will be massive arguments and more papers and more debate and more academic and more public debate about how successful mitigation could be, different uh, halfway houses between the two approaches, who's essential, who can go to work, how effective the lockdown is, and so on. And all of this chaos and madness influenced by cognitive biases and mass media biases and everyone's biases, that could all be continuing for a year or more. Is there any other alternative? Maybe. Because the crucial phase now is not do we lock down or not, we've done that. It's what we do after exiting lockdown. In those early days, we might expect to see only a few cases initially. If we can cut them off at the pass, we can delay things. If the infection takes a week to double, and you can catch half the people who have it with close surveillance, then every time you do that, you gain another week of freedom before the lockdown has to come in again. And when it comes to economies, when it comes to our general well-being, health and sanity, the countries and people who do the best are going to be the ones who can maximise that time they spend outside of lockdown. Again, this is from the paper, quote, Future decisions on when and for how long to relax policies will need to be informed by ongoing surveillance. The measures used to achieve suppression might also evolve over time. As case numbers fall, it becomes more feasible to adopt intensive testing, contact tracing, finding people who might be sick, and quarantine measures akin to the strategies being employed in South Korea today. Technologies such as mobile phone apps that track an individual's interactions with other people in society might allow such a policy to be more effective and scalable if the associated privacy concerns can be overcome. So South Korea is indeed a fascinating example, although given that it has one of the best healthcare systems in the world and is very technologically advanced, It might not be an example everyone else can replicate. They actually got unlucky very early. There was one super-spreading event associated with a religious group where 1,200 people may have caught the virus from one person who refused to be tested for a long time and went to buffet lunches and so on. However, now it's one of the few places where there are relatively few new cases. There have only been 120 deaths in South Korea. There were only 93 new cases uh, identified on the day I wrote this compared to 1,000 in the UK despite the virus spreading in South Korea for much longer. There have only been 120 deaths in South Korea, which is less than the daily rate in some countries. And the number of cases is actually declining slowly as people get better there. So they've controlled the epidemic, at least for now, to manageable levels. And they did so largely with methods similar to the ones described. From Wired UK, they say that uh, as of March 19th, the country has conducted more than 307,000 tests, uh, the highest per capita in the world, They do rigorous contact tracing, quarantine of anyone the carrier has come into contact with. Um, Michael Mina, who is the assistant professor at the Centre of Communicable Disease at Harvard University, says that its extensive testing is a very valuable tool to control the virus and measure the effectiveness of responses that are taking place. It has allowed individuals to take matters into their own hands and make decisions on their own, both to protect those around them and to protect themselves from infected people. Um, the country can apparently test more than 20,000 people a day at 633 sites worldwide. They have the drive through testing. A smartphone app provides GPS maps which can track where the infection is. Uh, medics have big white tents for testing on roadsides. Um, and the results come through by text in, within 24 hours. And um, there is Key Park, who lectures global health at Harvard, who's also quoted in this Wild article. And he says that... Uh, Koreans are super good at making things convenient for people because they have no patients, and the South Korea is so wired that the government is able to use cell phones uh, to track and send warnings like, watch out, there's a coronavirus patient nearby. Korean healthcare is very regulated, and it's an efficient single-payer system, and it's prepared to face epidemics because actually they failed to contain the 2015 outbreak of Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was another coronavirus which killed uh, up to a third of people who got it. They had 168 cases and 38 deaths, which is more than anywhere outside the Middle East. Uh, the World Health Organization said Korea's response was terrible and the country overhauled their response to these type of infections so they can make test kits faster and they can equip hospitals with isolation rooms and this kind of thing. And the Wired article also says that because the Korean population remembers MERS, uh, they're more likely to wash their hands, get tested, stay at home, etc. They have this memory of a, of a bad epidemic before. Knowing who the carrier is reduces the need for lockdowns. Um, Martin Hibbard, who is professor of emerging infectious diseases um, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, he says, quote, if everyone stays in their room and doesn't go out at all, which is the Chinese approach, then that's also very effective at cutting down transmissions. But in the absence of that kind of approach, I think that identifying who is positive and making sure those are quarantined is clearly very effective. So you can imagine a slightly brighter future than this uh, repetitive hammer of lockdown smashing into us. Um, Massive, massive rollout of testing. There's going to be a huge fortune to be made if people can come up with a simple, accurate test for these coronavirus antibodies like the one we discussed at the start of the episode. Huge teams of people who would work to trace every contact. Maybe mobile phone apps uh, could help them. Isolating and quarantining anyone who got sick. Efforts essentially to monitor and look for and surveil coronavirus that would make our lacklustre a few thermometers at the airport but flights carry on as normal approach look ridiculous. There are already apps that can detect when you've passed close to someone. Dating apps do it, for a start. So instead, imagine an app that has your status. Healthy, immune, infected. If you get sick or test positive, your status on the app is updated to infected, and everyone who's been close to you is told to self-isolate immediately, and hopefully get a coronavirus test as soon as possible. This system, although it's rather dystopian and 1984-esque, would rely on huge infringements of privacy, but it could potentially slow the spread of the virus in those early stages, buying us weeks and weeks out of lockdown. Or people might refuse to adopt it and smash up their phones or not report that they're sick or not agree to be tested or any number of a million things that could happen. You can imagine the world divided into the immune who can essentially live and work more or less as normal and the rest you have to worry about or look forward to or arrange the day when they can get coronavirus themselves. Antibody testing can tell us who's immune and who won't get reinfected. Those people can do the jobs that involve coming into contact with lots of others, which would reduce transmission quite substantially, especially for the vulnerable. It's a bizarre thought, but nothing about this situation is even remotely ordinary, so this doesn't necessarily sound like sci-fi. Now, it's worth pointing out that obviously not everyone agrees with Ferguson about how this is going to pan out. For example, uh, Black Swan author Nicholas Taleb suggests that the outbreak can be completely suppressed if you lock down for long enough. For example, in China, if you believe the numbers, we're down to a single reported case a day, with far more coming in now from overseas. Uh, Talib suggests that this indicates outbreaks can be stopped completely with no resurgence. I'm not sure that I agree, given that this thing is asymptomatic and still transmissible, how long it incubates for, how much it resembles mild illnesses like colds and flu for a lot of people. I mean, even if we're much more vigilant next time, I just think some people will slip through the cracks. It's so difficult to suppress this outbreak, which is why there are outbreaks happening now. In virtually every country in the world. But obviously, we all have to watch Wuhan very closely uh, to see what happens there. If the outbreak does resurge in China once their lockdown is over, which would take two or three weeks, um, that would suggest that it's very difficult to control this altogether. The first signs that an outbreak is returning might be two or three weeks after it does when patients show up at the hospitals with pneumonia again. So, you know, we we, we don't know that they've been successful at uh, permanently suppressing the epidemic. All we know is that they've stopped it for now. Uh, And Taleb also points out that nationwide lockdown is not the only option. Maybe if a case is detected in a region or town, you lock down the town and then try and stamp it out there, if you suspect community spread is there. Stricter monitoring on flights, journeys between cities, etc. is going to be really important. That much at least seems totally obvious to me that it will be necessary, because unfortunately we can't rely on every nation being as successful at implementing this extraordinary policy of extinguishing the virus in its own borders. We don't even know if it will work here, and we don't know if it worked permanently in China yet. So to say Taleb's rebuttal ruins this argument seems premature, although he does point out a lot of uh, valid flaws in the model. There will always be flaws in any model, things that it doesn't take into account, which you need to uh, consider. One thing is clear, though. Um, Nations and groups and organisations that can handle this new world well are going to win, and nations and groups and organisations that can't handle it are going to lose. And there's going to be a huge incentive to see if we can get this contact tracing, this mass testing, this dance with the epidemic working well. Neil Ferguson himself was interviewed today and he said, we clearly cannot lock down the country for a year. The challenge that many countries in the world are dealing with is how to move from an initial intensive lockdown to something that will have some effects, but will allow the economy to restart. That is likely to rely on very large scale testing and contact tracing it should be stated that the entire world is in the very early stage of developing such strategies. And seeing how well these strategies work and who can succeed at them, you know, this is going to be world-changing stuff, it really is, in terms of where everyone and your own individual nation is going in the future. Now, for several months now, since reading The Great Leveller, I've been working on a series about technology, inequality and global catastrophic risks. Briefly, that book, The Great Leveller, suggests that economic inequality tends to increase in societies um, massively uh, over time until something catastrophic happens. And this fascinated me, and I've been meaning to put out this series for months uh, talking about how technological developments and these big risks might uh, interplay with each other to make this theory true or untrue and all this sort of thing. So I wrote that months ago. I think those will be the next episodes you see on this feed, But since it's all about how massive catastrophes can lead to huge structural changes in society, and pandemics are one of the type of catastrophe that does that, I'm obviously going to need to write a little bit more on the end of that series, maybe, about how the predictions now look in light of the coronavirus. So this won't be the last you hear about the coronavirus, but I will try and get some non-pandemic material for you to chew on fairly soon. If you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., then you can let me know via the website at www.physicspodcast.com. If there are any specific questions that you'd like me to ask, topics you'd like me to cover, that contact form goes straight to my email, and I try to answer as many as I can. I'd also really appreciate it if you thought this was valuable to listen to, uh, if you tell some friends to listen as well. Finally, I just want to end by saying that I hope everyone is doing okay. Living through history is never easy, but when it affects us all in profound and mundane ways, it can be very difficult indeed. It's very surreal for me to write and even talk about this stuff as something that's real, rather than some hypothetical scenario, like I did for the Teot-Wauke specials on catastrophic risks in 2017. I sincerely hope that you are all doing well, and that you're willing to fight alongside me, alongside practically everyone else on the planet, to understand what we're dealing with, to deal with it, and to stay as sane as you can while we do so. I hope the knowledge that the actions you're taking in social distancing are, right now, helping to save the lives of people you don't know, can remain a comfort and an inspiration to get through these hard times. No matter how uncertain we are about the future and what it might bring, the only certainty we have is the only certainty we've ever had. This too shall pass. Take care of yourselves. I'll speak to you again soon. Until then, be brave and be kind.